Hello listeners and welcome to episode 3 of Uni Talks. In this episode, Riley from Accrington is our host. Riley, an aspiring forensic scientist, interviews Tara Shears, a particle physicist at the University of Liverpool and a researcher at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. Also in this episode, our agony aunts Anne-Marie and Paul will be giving you tips on what to expect from the culture at university, from societies and clubs to making your first friend. Now over to Riley. Hi, I'm Riley. Welcome to the UniTalks podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas in association with the Brilliant Club in King's College, London. I'm Riley Armstrong. I go to Accrington Academy 6th form, where I study four A-levels, being chemistry, biology, maths and psychology. I spend most of my time in the science department and colleges. It's where I find I learn the best and I have the biggest interest. Today we're at the University of Liverpool where I'm going to interview Tara Shears. Tara Shears is a particle physicist who does research into particles and how they affect the universe. Currently I'm sat in a courtyard. This is the first time I've ever visited a university and kind of surprises me. It's kind of overwhelming as there's so many different parts to the campus. I'm looking to go to university to do forensics. Do you know the forensic shows like where they're trying to find everyone who's like done a murder? Going to university is kind of a new thing for my family as well. Kind of makes it that bigger step into like an unknown, but I think that'll be one of the best things about it is I won't know what's coming, uh, I don't know what to expect. Currently we're walking past some laboratories conducting science experiments where they're using this interesting machine. There's a little mechanical arm moving around and there's this person just observing what this little arm's doing and taking notes, checking on everything. That's pretty cool to be fair. In school we normally like reduce to a few gas taps on a desk but yeah, they've got like, everything. It's a lot different to what I'm used to. From the interview, I want to start, just see the passion that she has for her subject. So by asking her questions about her research and maybe misconceptions about her research, we can see what actually interests her and why she's so passionate about what she does. So we're going up in the lift to go meet Tara for the first time. Third floor. Doors opening. Hi. Nice to meet you. So do you want to tell me a bit about yourself? My name's Tara Shears and I work in the physics department at the University of Liverpool and I'm an experimental particle physicist. My experiment, LHCB, is on CERN's Large Hadron Collider, LHC for short, which is the biggest and most powerful particle accelerator we've ever made and the most exciting place to work if you're a particle physicist. Do you think you could explain in enough detail to maybe like a primary school child or maybe a low, low <laughs> oh, <no>. high school? <laughs> I'm failing already. <laughs> roughly about your work. So my work is to do with understanding what the structure of the universe is. 
It's my job to identify the very smallest stuff of all. Maybe I can tell you what antimatter is, and then I can tell you that it's very rare, unless you eat bananas. So one of the, the really mysterious things about antimatter for us is, well, not just that we don't understand it, but the fact it's, it's very rare in the universe. So every type of elemental, fundamental particle that makes up everything has a counterpart, an oppositely charged counterpart that's an antimatter version. These antimatter versions are incredibly rare in the universe. So rare you hardly see them unless they're produced by radioactive decay. In everyday life, that's the only way we see antimatter. So bananas are a very good source of antimatter because they contain potassium. And there's an isotope of potassium, potassium 40, that emits antimatter electrons. <laughs> you look surprised. <laughs> You'll never eat banana again, will you? I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> Even though you enjoy doing the research, would you say it's kind of a build up? And then if you don't get the results you're looking for, like what, what are you thinking? Like, what's your mentality after that? I don't know. I think you develop this, this ability to be wildly optimistic. So if you don't find anything new, it's not a disaster. And if you do find something that doesn't fit, well, then it is the best thing ever. Because at that moment, you know, suddenly your heart races and you're looking at, at this data and it doesn't fit and you're excited. And the first thing you do is think, it's because I've, I've interpreted it wrong. I've made a mistake, I've made a mistake. So you go through, you check it, you check it, you check it. And if you still see a discrepancy there, then it's like everything else falls out of focus. So the only thing you can see is this difference. And you suddenly realize it might be really fundamental. You might be seeing for the very first time the thing that everybody has been looking for, which is finally something that doesn't fit. You are so excited that you probably work nonstop for about three days, thinking of new tests to confirm it and to cross-check it. And then after three days, you suddenly realize you did do something wrong. That's what normally happens. And then you're very depressed and you don't want to touch it for about a week. And then you get excited about something else you see. But underneath it all, underneath it, we never stop because although you might have a setback because you think you've discovered something that hasn't turned out right, there's always something else. And it's always that desire to find out more that keeps you going and makes you keep on looking. So this desire to keep on going, is this kind of a value you look in people if you're working with them? I think so. Yes, that's, that's quite an important thing, actually. You need to work with people who are sufficiently open enough to consider new approaches all the time. So that if something doesn't work out, they're not going to be so blinkered that they're going to do the same thing again and again and again and again and again. It's always really nice to work with people who have a completely different way of interpreting things or a different viewpoint. And for us as experimentalists, it makes it very nice to work with theoretical physicists who make the predictions because they really do see the universe from a completely different point of view. I have no idea what the universe looks like through their eyes even because they're able to imagine in like seven or eight dimensions things that are just impossible for me. We always understand more by talking to each other from your work, what is actually the most rewarding thing? The best thing is what you don't actually see. And so when, when you see me working and having a really rewarding moment, I probably just look like anybody sat in front of a computer. But what's rewarding to me is being able to get hold of the data that comes out of my experiment and find a way of looking at it so it makes sense, which sounds like a simple thing to do, but it isn't, it really isn't. And the moment you get it to make sense, what that means that you're able to do is in, in my field of research, it means that you're able to really see what the universe is made of when you get down to the really smallest constituents. It's like having access to the first sight of something new. 
that's that's the rewarding thing for me. Yeah, as you said, it's like a sense of understanding and like being able to understand what's actually going on around you. Would was that what you were planning on from all the way from your undergraduate degree? Was you like I want to be able to find out new things and be able to understand? I think the wanting to understand stuff was always there and I studied physics because well it was interesting but I also wanted to understand how to understand things and physics gave me a really a good framework for doing it that I got on well with I mean it's not the only way to understand what goes on but it was a way I got on with and I found out when I was studying physics that what I really wanted to do was to take something as simple as possible and try and understand that because that's what I stood the best chance of understanding. If there was one area which you could be more specialised in, uh, have a deeper understanding in, what would it be? Maths, <laughs> for me, most definitely. If you were sat in my shoes right now, what would you do different if you were back at my age? To be honest, I don't know that I'd do much different because things work out and you have to learn. There wouldn't have been any point in something, in someone coming to me when I was still at school saying, this would be the easiest path you can take through your career and this will get you to this place. Because then I'd never really learn anything. During the PhD, I realised that I really, really, really did enjoy research and it's what I wanted to do. So I started applying for jobs when I was coming to the end of my PhD. I couldn't get any. The, the competition was really intense and I just wasn't good enough to get one. And it was really depressing, really depressing. And I thought, well, this is rubbish. I'm not going to get a job at this rate. I'm going to just take a bit more time with my PhD and I'm going to write up my results and finish them up for a paper. Then I'll finish the PhD, then I'll try again. Maybe I'm just not competitive because I don't have a publication. So I did that, tried again, and it worked. It made the difference. But I would never have realised that had I not gone through that stage of being penniless, which I don't recommend, <laughs> but, but, but also not being able to get somewhere and then working out why. Sometimes for people like me who have a brief understanding of sciences, it's hard to comprehend the scale of what speed or what, how big things are happening at. What is that advice for students? Because some will be quick to rule anything off just because oh, it doesn't make sense at the first time of thinking about it. So the, the best way is always to try and put it into some form of context that you can relate to. It's very often when you, when you get a description about something that just sounds ultra-fantastic, stupid. <laughs> it's because you've got nothing to relate it to in your head. But if you can find a, a way to relate the scale at which something happens to a scale that makes sense to you. So the vast amount of research and analysing you do on this data uh, obviously give you an in-depth, very in-depth perception of what's actually going on with your research and how much does this actually help with t your teaching? It helps quite a lot actually but the way it helps it probably isn't the way that you might think. Where it really helps your teaching is in actually communicating your results to your colleagues. I work with people from Brazil, from France, from Switzerland, from Germany, from Japan, from China, and, and we have to pick on a language and a way of expressing ourselves that's clear for everybody, to make our physics accessible for everybody. And by picking the simplest and most straightforward ways to communicate what you're seeing, that's exactly what you need for teaching.
You don't want to talk all around the houses when you're trying to describe something happening. You want to be quite succinct about it. So I watched a video of you talking where you talk about a black hole and how they should have fallen apart a long time ago, but you, you can't see it, but you know there's something in there large enough to hold it together. Can you relate your work from looking at the really small things way up to the things that you can't really comprehend the size of? So I'm a particle physicist and this is an experimental area of physics that tries to understand structure by taking stuff to pieces and looking for the smallest bits of which other stuff is made. And this is something that really blows my mind when I think about it. Because you would never guess that if you can take something down to the level of not just atoms, an atom is what, it's a, a thousand millionth of a, a metre. But the stuff I'm looking at is as small compared to an atom as an atom is compared to you. So it really is unimaginably tiny, so small that we can't measure a size. We, we lack the technology to do that. And yet their behaviour and the forces that govern their behaviour are the forces that govern so much else in the universe. It's the same force operating at this, that tiny, tiny scale that makes specific particles be produced in my experiment that I can identify, as makes the sun fuse together atomic nuclei to give out heat and light. That is a marvel of physics, I think. So for a student who might be coming to university, what do you recommend they could read or get a greater understanding of before they actually turn up to university? I don't think you should look at textbooks particularly. I mean, you've, you've been doing that at school. So what you need to look at are things that expand your horizons. So for that, for physics, I'd recommend read The New Scientist. Read what's happening on the frontiers of research. Find out the limits of our understanding. Read popular books about the subject that take the really interesting areas and explain them to you. Maybe you're interested in the stars and why they're like that. Maybe you're interested in black holes. Maybe the announcement of gravitational waves has caught your imagination. Maybe you want to look at the very small stuff instead of the very big stuff. Read about it. Find out a little bit about it. If you found something that you're really interested in, then it will make you really want to get on top of all this material because it makes you really want to get to that understanding. So if you, if you can pinpoint those areas you're interested in before you go to university, you've got an advantage. Thank you, Tara, for letting us use your time to conduct this interview. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So I've just come out of the interview with Tara and I've got a really good insight of what university life is kind of like and what you can gain from it and an insight to what maybe a teacher's role is and what their research does to help the students as well. The thing that stood out for me was the fact that there's antimatter and bananas and like it's just something you don't ever think about but it was just it just kind of surprised me. After meeting Tara I'm definitely gonna change my approach to how I'm gonna apply for universities. I know now you've got to have a real real interest in the subject. You've got to show that off. Next you'll be hearing from our admissions agony aunts, Anne-Marie and Paul. Anne-Marie and Paul both work at King's College London in the admissions department. Paul is the director of admissions and Anne-Marie is director of widening participation. 
They'll be answering questions that you've sent in about applying to university. Hello, I'm Anne-Marie. I'm the Director of Widening Participation at King's College London. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm the Director of Admissions at King's College London. We, we are, are the, the Admissions, admissions Agony Ants. This week we're talking about culture and university life. Okay, I'll ask you a question. How does it feel to be a brand new student at the university? So, I think it's probably one of the most exciting days of your life. If you imagine here at King's we have something like 24,000 students and there'll be 6,000 new undergraduates starting and you're all in the same boat. There is a kind of weird week at the beginning where you seem to ask the same questions over and over again. Where do you come from? What A-levels did you do? Etc. But thankfully that moves on pretty quickly and you get into some interesting discussions about everything from sport to politics to religion to the price of Jaffa cakes, whatever it is that is your thing. <laughs> uh, okay, um, Paul, what activities can you do in your spare time? Uh, and the student asked, what facilities do universities offer? I mean, it is literally limitless. Uh, so most universities, if it's a big university, will have two or three hundred different clubs and societies. Um, from sports that you have done at school, perhaps it might be swimming or uh, cricket or football or netball, basketball, um, to more unusual sports. So we have Ultimate Frisbee Societies, which is really popular at university. And even a, a sport called corfball, which I'd never heard of before. Have you heard of it, Anne-Marie? I have, actually. It's it, one of the most democratic sports available. The best clubs and societies are the ones who do the most for themselves. They're often fundraising with big companies to generate money to do these things. They're travelling the globe. Um, we've got some things like the Kingsmen, one of our uh, a cappella singing groups who travel the world and get, uh, you know, get uh, uh, paid to go and do uh, singing all across the globe. So there's some really great opportunities within the universities for students to engage with. Yeah, I mean, Octopush is one of my favourite uh, sports societies at King's. It's underwater hockey. Um, but there is everything you could imagine available. And if we don't have the thing that you're really interested in, then we can help you to set it up. One of the things about the extracurricular activities is we always keep Wednesday afternoons free at universities. So if you're worried about balancing your time, actually there's not really all that much to worry about because we keep a whole afternoon free. Really importantly about extracurricular activities, they're not just for fun. They are super fun, but actually being involved with them is a brilliant way to enhance your skills. It's a brilliant way to become more employable. So there's something you should do because they're enjoyable, but also because they're going to help you when it comes uh, to the time to get a job. And of course there are some things which are kind of a mixture between fun and also paid fun as well. So I think one of the best things to get involved with at university, which may well be paid fun, is becoming a student ambassador. There are lots of opportunities to work for the university to actually encourage more students, perhaps from your area, to come and join us at the university. And I actually think that that's been you know, one of the greatest things that I've seen our students get involved with. Okay, interesting questions, let's go. Are you allowed pets? We had a student in just today who was really, really missing uh, their pet cat. Uh, and, uh, and was really you know, finding it hard to, 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 to uh, live away from home without them and uh, you know, uh, actually it was a really sensitive issue to, uh, to deal with. So um, the answer is that for most student residences actually uh, you're probably not going to be able to bring uh, your pet with you. Um, obviously uh, you know, other students may be allergic etc so pets aren't really uh, allowed but remember the terms for university are quite short, eight to ten weeks long so you'll be reunited pretty quickly. Yeah, and you can go to a university where there are pets resident on campus so there is uh, something called the duckdensitycalculator.org where you can find out the number of ducks on campus. Uh, I know this because the University of York where I studied has the highest ratio of 
ducks to students of any university in the world, um, followed by Warwick. It's not the case that there won't be animals on campus. So, Anne-Marie, uh, we have a question from a student here. How do you make new friends and, and, and what about roommates, etc? Am I going to share a room with someone or, or will I get my own room? For most students, when they go away to university, they'll be living in student accommodation. And um, what that usually means is that you'll have a, a relatively small room to yourself. Um, it could be ensuite or it could be uh, just a room with a shared bathroom. Uh, my top tip to save a bit of money is to go into a, a, a place where you're sharing a bathroom. There's nothing better for bonding than uh, having shared facilities. So you can make friends with your, uh, your new housemates, um, you can make friends with people on your course, um, so your subject friends, and also you can make friends through student societies. I would suggest that it's a good idea to have a mix of those different groups of friends. Um, lots of people um, will, will sort of just meet the first people they meet at university and then think they have to stick with them. That's not the case at all. And actually my best friends from university are the ones that I met in second year. Um, so make sure uh, you're open to um, meeting new folks um, and making as many friends as possible. What is it like living with people you've just met? Well, you're in the same boat. Um, you, you know, you've nearly always got your own room, so you do have your own personal space. But you know, important to get out of that personal space and spend time with with the other groups. Um, you know, it does happen at the university. We offer swaps between accommodation at the end of the first term. So sometimes students can move if they feel that another environment will be useful to them. But actually, I think there are lots of other things to you know to think about at university, and that's going to be one of the easiest. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to paint a completely rosy picture because at some point when you're living with people you've only just met, you're having to negotiate your living arrangements, maybe someone's used your milk, maybe someone's taken ages in the shower, but that's part of growing up, isn't it? That's part of uh, sort of becoming uh, an independent student, learning to negotiate through those issues with your fellow um, students and residents. Is this why there's never any milk in Alphawich at work, Matt Murray? Okay. <laughs> in next week's episode, we're going to be talking about competitive courses. That's all from our admissions agony ants. Join us next time for another UniTalks podcast. Good luck with your applications. So now I'm going to ask Tara some interview questions which have been used at interviews for universities. So do you think that teleportation can be possible in the future? <laughs> oh, that's such a cheeky question. <laughs> You can have... <laughs> yeah, I know you're going to play this all the way through with me thinking about it. So teleportation, I, I can think of a few ways of doing it. So the first way is if you have a wormhole in space. And this is, this is a feature of space-time. Instead of being flat or slightly curved, suddenly turns round on itself and connects two areas that are quite far apart. Now, if you were to find such an area of the universe, which is theoretically possible, then you could nip through it and take a shortcut. And that would be equivalent to teleporting yourself a great distance in a very short time. Now, no one's found any evidence that wormholes exist yet, but that's not to say they're not there. And in the future, which I've noticed is undefined in your question, the future could be long enough and mankind might survive long enough to develop the technology to actually find it. And that might be one way to, to teleport. So I think I'm going to go with that for an answer. All right. And the second question is, how many ashtrays are there in all those restaurants in Liverpool? Oh my goodness me! What, since the smoking ban? I don't know. <laughs>
<laughs> but that is a, oh, Gino, that sort of question. That is exactly the type, this is exactly the type of reasoning we try and encourage in our undergraduates I'm going to fail at dismally now. And that's estimating, having the power of estimating. So before the smoking ban, um, half the tables in a restaurant to have an ashtray. And maybe with about, I'd say, maybe I'd have 20 tables in a restaurant. So let's say that's 10 ashtrays per, per restaurant. How many restaurants are there in Liverpool? My goodness me, let's say that there's... This is a total guess now. If I'm, if I'm going to, do I, do I count pubs? <laughs> Let's say there's a hundred places in the city centre where one might smoke and use an ashtray. So therefore I'd say that's a hundred times ten, about ten thousand. Am I right? <laughs> Third question. So what happens if I drop an ant? <laughs> what happens if you drop an ant? I anywhere particular? No, nope, just I'm here and I'll just drop an ant. What happens? Now I think are you referring to the butterfly effect where you can make a very small change to a very complicated chaotic system and have unforeseen consequences calling causing chaos and tornadoes in Los Angeles in ten years' time or something. Um, actually I don't think anything's gonna happen if you drop an ant, to be quite honest. I'll try not to. Um, if you leave a fridge turned on in a thermally isolated room, what happens to the room? I leave the fridge turned on. Well, I think the room heats up. Although you think if you leave the, the fridge door open, you're, you're blasting out cold air. But in order to create the cold air, you're using a lot of electricity in the big generator to have a heat engine that takes the air from that's in the fridge and tries to cool it down. Now, if you've got the fridge door open, the air in the fridge is going to get warm and the fridge motor is going to have to work harder and harder to cool down the air, so it's going to get hotter and hotter and you're going to get a feedback loop. I think if you had a completely sealed room, then you might end up just making the fridge overheat and breaking it. But I've never tested it, actually. If I was asking this question, this would be the point in my lectures, I'd say, now this is a question for the students to try out at home, which is probably inadvisable. You don't really want to try this. In next week's episode, we'll be joining a duo of hosts, Simran and Kimjeet, who both live in London. They'll be discovering the link between philosophy and physics when they meet Professor Eleanor Knox from King's College London. UniTalks was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas in association with the Brilliant Club and King's College London. The IAI's vision is to create a world where philosophy and big ideas are at the heart of society. The Brilliant Club is an award-winning charity. They work to increase the number of pupils from underrepresented backgrounds progressing to highly selective universities. UniTalks is produced by Hannah Renton, Irene Carter and Bridie Addison-Child at the IAI, with editing on this episode by Irene, and help from Anna Crisp, Helena Berry and Genevieve Marciniak and from The Brilliant Club, Michael Savinsky, Jordana Knight, and Jade Henley. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and to find out more about the series, visit the education page on iai.tv. Thanks for listening. <laughs>